Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, October 12th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today via video conference by Victoria Knight of Axios. Good morning. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, everybody. And Lauren Weber of The Washington Post. Hello, hello. Later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Dr. Author Samuel Shem, who wrote House of God, the seminal novel about medical training back in the 1970s, and who has a new take on what ails our healthcare system. But first, the news. So we've been off for a week, so KFF could have an all-staff retreat in California, which was lovely, by the way. And against all odds, it's October 12th, and the federal government is not shut down. Although the continuing resolution that squeaked through Congress at the very last minute on September 30th expires November 17th, so we could be going through all of this again next month. Meanwhile, conservative Republicans who were angry that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to keep the government open ousted him from his job, the first time ever a speaker has been kicked out mid-Congress, and things are, to put it mildly, in disarray. But I want to go back to that six-week continuing resolution. It does just continue appropriations, but it also had some important, if temporary, authorizing provisions, like for community health centers. Right, Victoria? Yeah, that's right. There were a few provisions that were just kind of kept it going as it was funded at the same level that was community health centers. And there were a few for the Pandemic All Hazard Preparedness Act. Then there were also some things that were not renewed in PAPA. And then also the PEPFAR program, which figured we might talk about a little bit, which is the program that funds programs in other countries to help with HIV AIDS treatment and research. And it's been a longstanding bipartisan program and it has come up against some obstacles this Congress. Just to remind people who don't follow this as closely as we do, the appropriations are what actually keep the lights on. Those are the spending bills that Congress has to pass or either permanent in permanent or temporary fashion at the beginning of the fiscal year, October 1st, or things shut down. Things like PEPFAR and community health centers continue to get funded, but they're they're a Official authorizations expired at the end of the fiscal year. And while community health centers were kept going, PEPFAR has not. And of course, the House, which is, as we speak, still leaderless, can't really do anything. But are there at least like negotiations going on? I know PEPFAR really is a bipartisan program, as you say, and there is some effort to keep it going because some people frankly say it's embarrassing for the United States to look like it is reneging on this, even though it's technically not. Well, and it was originally started under a Republican president, George W. Bush, and it has always been reauthorized for five-year intervals. That's never not happened. You know, I've talked to members of Congress about this. In the House, they only want to reauthorize it for one year, and they've been very open about um, that's because they want a new Republican president to come in and kind of further restrict where funding is going to really, in their mind, ensure it's not going to abortion funding even though there's really no evidence that funding from PEPFAR goes to NGOs that fund abortions or anything like that. And then in the Senate, it's a different story. Another little factor is that Senator Bob Menendez was the lead on this. And uh, then he had to step step down from his chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And that's just a matter of Senate rules. 
since he's under indictment. Again. Again, yes. And so Senator Ben Cardin just took that chairmanship. And I'm not sure how much PEPFAR is on his radar. Um, I tried to ask him about it recently, and he uh, was like, i got to go to a meeting. And I know for Menendez, it was a, a really big thing that he cared about and was like, I want to reauthorize it for five years. So as far as I can tell, it's kind of a standstill between the House and the Senate and to be determined. But maybe at the end of the year, if we get a big bill, something will be put in there. Maybe they'll negotiate it to three years. I've heard something about that. But again, this will be the first time it has been reauthorized for five years. And that would send a signal to other countries that maybe the U.S. is not as devoted to treating HIV AIDS and helping programs in other countries. Yeah, obviously, with everything else going on in the world, it's not the biggest deal, but there are still a lot of people who are very concerned about it. The other, at least somewhat surprising thing that happened on October 1st, the beginning of the fiscal year, is that all of the drug makers responsible for the 10 drugs that Medicare has selected for the first round of price negotiation have agreed to negotiate, at least for now. That's likely because the first round of the first of several lawsuits in federal court seeking to block the program found in favor of the government. In other words, the program did not get blocked by the courts. But Sarah, this fight is a long way from over, right? Yeah, there's a number of lawsuits. I think we might be up to eight now, but don't hold me to that exact figure. Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) Yeah. Even this lawsuit, um, the initial blow, I think, was pretty big for the drug industry here because we have a Trump-appointed judge who made a pretty clear preliminary decision that he doesn't think the drug industry can make its constitutionality challenges, that this law is not constitutional, and which I think is a pretty big deal because most of the initial lawsuits revolved around constitutional challenges. And then there are other issues in the first particular case around like whether it's even the people who are suing have standing or it's ripe for a lawsuit now, whether because anybody's actually been harmed at this point. But yeah, everybody, all the companies have entered into agreements with Medicare to negotiate now. A lot of them have said, well, we're doing this, but basically because we have no other choice, we have to, we're doing it in protest, we're still continuing our lawsuits. So you can kind of expect two parallel tracks to be going on right now, mostly behind the scenes. This pretty much going to take a whole year for Medicare and the companies to get to the place where we'll then see a um, public negotiated price next fall, next September. And these lawsuits to proceed, again, just, I think, The constitutionality issue um, got a really big blow. There are some other lawsuits that I think could be more interesting that are arguing more about decisions Medicare made. So more about APA Procedures Act cases, which are a little bit different and I think might have a little bit more chance of getting the drug industry some wins. The APA is the Administrative Procedures Act, and basically Thanks. saying that, yeah, that, that Medicare didn't follow all of the appropriate rules in how it devised and rolled out the program. Right. And I as think opposed to the as opposed to the big lawsuits that said you can't force us to do this, which not a lawyer, but every other health provider <laughs> says goes under the if you want to play in Medicare, you have to take our price. So it's hard to see where the drug companies are going to have something completely different. But that's just me. You never know. Right. And this Trump appointed judge, I keep emphasizing that because they, they picked the Fifth Circuit. They looked for a friendly judge. 
and they couldn't get the win there. And he said, you know, Medicare is a voluntary program. The government has stopped forcing you to participate in Medicare. If you don't like this, you can leave. And so, you know, I think this is pretty symbolic loss for the industry in some of these arguments they're going to make. That said, these APA cases, you know, you could maybe see them getting kind of more like tweaks around the edges to shift the program in ways that favor it. But we know how the way litigation works in this country it's going to be this long slog to figure out how that shakes out as the program is potentially, again, on the other side, getting worked out and maybe implemented. We will see. All right. Well, elsewhere in disarray, um, if this was the summer of strikes in Hollywood, it's shaping up as the autumn of strikes by health workers. Last week, 75,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente, no relation, just to remind listeners, uh, in several states walked out for three days. Workers at several other hospitals in and around Los Angeles walked out, and we're seeing pharmacists taking work actions at both of the big chains, CVS and Walgreens. All of these walkouts have basically the same thing in common. Striking workers say that the shortage of personnel is endangering patients as those who are left at work face impossible workloads. Uh, And these employers are not in a great situation to fix this. COVID accelerated the departure of a lot of healthcare workers, and there simply aren't the bodies to fill all of these vacant positions. Is there any settlement in sight, any way to fix any of this that anybody has proposed? I think if any of us sitting in this table have family, friends that work as nurses or pharmacists, they've been hearing about these problems for years. I mean, all it takes is talking to somebody that works in this industry to realize that they have been short-staffed and underfunded for a very long time. And, And a lot of them really worry about the actual errors that can result from that. I mean, I think what's really important to consider is to get to a strike, you have to have a lot of bad things going on. I mean, I think some of the Reports say that, you know, some of these hospitals had filed countless complaints with the local county health in in California that had not gotten listened to about their staffing shortages. And when you have short staffing for nurses, that means that you feel like patients are not getting seen. Something could be happening. They feel like they're they're putting these people in jeopardy. So I don't really think there's going to be a lot of end to this in sight. I think kind of once you kick off these strikes like this, it's a bit of a chain effect. I mean, we saw CVS pharmacy employees had a strike, and then Walgreens employees have started doing that. And frankly, you know, the CVS one was pretty successful. The CVS CEO went out there and said, look, we hear your conditions. We'll work on cutting down hours, and we'll try and accommodate you. So I think we're going to be in for a lot more of these in the months to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing if workers, you know, there aren't enough, you know, checkers at the grocery store and you have to stand in line for longer. But it's quite another thing when you have a nurse in an intensive care unit trying to keep track of six patients instead of three or a pharmacist trying to, to keep track of basically everything that's going on with no help. And it's and that's what we're seeing around the country with these, you know, shortages of, of trained health care workers. And in California, there's another complication because they actually have laws about patient-nurse ratios in hospitals, and some of them are not being, you know, uh, actually obeyed. So I imagine that this is going to go on. But, you know, we, we hear a lot about healthcare worker shortages. I think this is the worst one that I've seen in, in my career, where there just really aren't the bodies to meet the demand here. Well, speaking of things that 
that also aren't going swimmingly. That seems to be our theme this week. There's a lot of early demand for the new COVID vaccine that was approved in September and apparently not a lot of supply. Also, as we just discussed, a lot of the responsibility for the vaccine is being pushed to pharmacies whose already overstretched staff simply don't have the bandwidth to deliver vaccines in addition to all the drugs that they're asked to be uh, counting out and prescribing. Sarah, shouldn't the system have been more ready for this? It's not like we didn't know pretty much exactly when this vaccine was going to become available. They'd been saying mid-September for the last five months. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of criticism, particularly on the health insurance side with codes and things not being set up to put it in. It's less clear exactly what has gone wrong in the supply chain issue where there are reports of wholesalers not being able to get supply to the pharmacies to even have enough shots. Um, Lots of people are reporting, you know, they have appointments, they get there, they show up, the pharmacist is out. One thing I've been wondering is just there's been kind of low uptake of boosters in the U.S. And so if it's been harder for them to predict how much supply they want to have, it's a bit different when the government is no longer sort of funding those shots. Pharmacies, doctor's offices have been concerned, you know, what if they buy more than they end up using? Are they out money? I know in some cases, some of the companies have made some concessions and said we will take back unused product and so forth because there's just different financial considerations that I think are impacting how much supply is on hand at different times right now. So, and it's, of course, it's even worse for kids, right? Because kids can't go to the generally to the pharmacies to get their vaccines. Right. So most of the country to get a vaccine by a pharmacist, you have to be at least three. It varies a little bit by state and so forth. And a lot of pediatricians offices don't have these shots. One of the reasons it seems to be is that, again, these wholesalers who kind of ship the supply around the country have prioritized adult vaccinations. I know personally, my pediatrician's office still does not have the shots as well. And you have two little ones, right? right? And I have, I, again, I have one under three and I looked in the vaccines.gov the other day to see what would they tell me if I put in, you know, for an under three-year-old. And there was one pharmacy in all of D.C. that claimed they would vaccinate someone under three for COVID, which, you know, I haven't done the legwork yet to see if that's actually correct. But, you know, you're hearing these reports of people traveling really far to get pediatric shots. And again, just to emphasize that, you know, there are babies being born all the time who, when they turn six months, they are getting their first COVID shot, right? They have not, I hopefully they haven't had COVID, you know, you want them protected before they get exposed. So that's a really crucial gap in the health system that I think people don't appreciate. Because a lot of people are just thinking now, well, oh, everybody's had COVID or had two or three shots. And this is a particularly vulnerable population that's having trouble finding vaccines right now. And yet, I mean, considering it's very early in the respiratory disease season, there seems to be a lot of COVID going around right now, which I suspect is why there's such a demand, at least among, you know, the people who are most concerned about getting the vaccine for getting the vaccine. It feels like it did at the beginning when it's like suddenly there's this big rush of people at the beginning who want it. And, you know, eventually there'll probably be more vaccine than is needed. But for right now, I mean, I'm seeing lots and lots and lots of stories and anecdotes and everything about people, as you say, making appointments, go showing up and having the pharmacy saying, oops, we didn't get our supply. I mean, there's been this sort of hope and narrative that, you know, COVID isn't going to become seasonal in the way we think of flu, where there's generally more clear defined season. You can kind of Make a good guess that the best time to get your flu shot is in October and know you'll be protected all flu season. As much as we hope that's the case with COVID and eventually becomes the case, that's really not true now. We've still had, again, they're relative maybe compared to some other surges, but we've had surges pretty much every summer. 
So it's been really difficult. And a lot of parents, I think, wanted to get their kids vaccinated before they went back into school and classrooms. And if you have little kids, you just know it becomes a big germ bath. And everybody gets sick. So, And parents wanted to get themselves vaccinated before their kids went back to school and brought home those germs. Right. So the timing of it, again, hasn't been great for that regard. But I think it is just this kind of difficulty with COVID in that we haven't had that same predictability of when you might get it during the year. So it is a lot harder to protect yourself. We'll see how that sorts itself out. Um, well, uh, keeping with our continuing thing of things that are not going great, let's talk about the Medicaid unwinding. Our podcast colleague, Amy Goldstein, has a troubling story in the Washington Post about how people whose Medicaid coverage is being canceled, but who are eligible for subsidized plans under the Affordable Care Act, are, in fact, having trouble making that transition. Sometimes people are falling through the cracks because states don't have enough information to know what they are eligible for, or they don't have the staff to process the transitions. And sometimes in states like California, people fail to follow up even when they are given all the information they need. Is this just the inevitable fallout of trying to redetermine the complicated eligibility rules for more than 90 million Americans in a single year? Or could something more have been done? I mean, I how many times did I hear them say, it's okay if you get dropped from Medicaid, we're going to get you on to your Affordable Care Act plan that's fully subsidized subsidized. And that doesn't seem to be happening in every state. I mean, it seemed like from Amy's reporting that there are some states that have kind of connected their um, Medicaid systems and their exchange signups really closely. And those are going better. But California. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She mentioned the Medi-Cal system. But then even these states that she kind of calls out as the success stories still have fairly low transition rates. And it's just one of the many examples of our country of having such like separate systems and very different bureaucratic processes for sign up that really hurt people. And as we've seen with this Medicaid process, a lot of it is just about these, you know, sort of paperwork, if you will, call them burdens that really get people to lose their health insurance and not be covered. So that's really I taped a podcast earlier this week uh, aimed at young adults, teaching them how to, quote unquote, adult, talking about health insurance and open enrollment and how to get signed up. And, you know, after the Affordable Care Act, there are so many more protections than there were before. And yet it is still unbelievably complicated to try to explain to somebody, you know, who's facing this for the first time. There are just so many possibilities and so many ways, you know, there's lots of ways to get health insurance and there's even more ways to fall through the cracks and not get health insurance. And it just, it seems that sort of the the more we try to like put band-aids on the system, the more confusing it gets to everybody. Um, Maybe I've been doing this for too long. (laughs) All right. Well, Finally, this week, also in not great news, the Washington Post has published a giant project on declining life expectancy in the United States. And it turns out the problem is a lot more complicated than just COVID and drug overdoses. Those are the things we've been hearing about for a while, although those are indeed a piece of it. Lauren, you were part of the team that put this project together. Tell us the real reasons why Americans aren't living as long as they used to and aren't living as long as people in other countries. Our team found that income had a big, big part to do with that. The poorest counties in the U.S. compared to the richest counties in the U.S. are doing six times worse than they were 40 some years ago when it comes to life expectancy. Uh, the income gap has increased, obviously, but not nearly as much as the life expectancy gap has increased. And I, I think that says something about the U.S. And in general, I mean, as you mentioned, a lot of people consider opioids, deaths of despair to be what's killing Americans across the country. But 
they're really overlooking chronic illness. And our reporting, my reporting with Dan Diamond and Dan Keating and I, we looked at how the politics also play into life expectancy. And what we found is that public health initiatives and public health laws like tobacco laws for tobacco taxes, seatbelt laws, and investing in public health does have a direct correlation to longevity of life. And so state politics and state policies and lawmaker decisions can shave years off of Americans' lives. And what we found in our reporting and our analysis is that that was happening in red states, particularly those in the South and the Midwest. You know, what we did is we compared three counties that ring Lake Erie, um, Asheville, Ohio, Erie County, Pennsylvania, and Chautauqua, New York. And these three counties, they're all pretty down on their luck. Industrially, the jobs have gone. None of these counties is a success story in health but they're all across state lines. And it's just very vivid to see how the different tobacco taxes, seatbelt laws have resulted in, in totally different outcomes when it comes to life expectancy. And you could see even reflected in these counties, the COVID death rates tracked the the state investments in public health and the state infrastructure in public health. And so, you know, something that our series looks to do is, is kind of explain why a state like Ohio has the same life expectancy as Slovakia. You know, one in five Ohioans won't make it to 65. That's a pretty wild stat. And so I think a lot of people in this country don't realize that life expectancy, some of these preventable diseases are preventable. Yeah, I mean, I was really taken by the comparison of tobacco taxes, where the tobacco taxes were the lowest, which I guess was Ohio, um, that, you know, the rate of smoking and surprise smoking related diseases was much higher and therefore life expectancy was much lower. I noticed that the Washington Post had yet another story uh, this week. Not quite the same, but how Great Britain and some other countries in Europe are trying to effectively ban smoking, not by banning it outright, which will just make it, you know, a black market, but by doing it year by year so that the current cohort of people who smoke will be able to continue. But as younger people get older, it will become illegal until eventually, you know, when everybody dies off, their smoking will be basically banned in Great Britain. Somehow I can't see that ever happening here, but it's certainly a public health initiative that's pretty bold. Uh, It's pretty bold. It would not happen here. I mean, look, you know, one of the legislators that we talked to in Ohio who had stopped a lot of the tobacco taxes, Bill Seitz, House Floor Majority Leader for Ohio, he smoked for 50 years before he quit this summer, actually, because he got kidney cancer and lost a kidney. So he stopped smoking. But what he said to us when we asked him how he felt about having blocked all these tobacco taxes and if he planned to keep doing that, he said... Well, just because I quit smoking doesn't mean I'm going to become a smoke Nazi now. People, you know, have the liberty and were the right to smoke. And I mean, a lot of what our reporting came down to is is this concept of personal freedom and liberty versus public health, you know, looking at the community as a whole. And it was really fascinating to kind of dig into some of the interesting dynamics in Ohio, especially because Governor DeWine, who is a Republican, has been more bold on public health and has tried to push the legislature to consider more of these initiatives, in part because he has a personal story. You know, his daughter died over 30 years ago in a car accident. And so he's been very aggressive in especially car safety, but really in a lot of public health initiatives, because as he told us, you know, that kind of death clarifies things for you when it comes to tipping the scales for people's loved ones. So, you know, we'll see that dynamic play out across the U.S., but it is it is fascinating to examine how tobacco is very much with us, I mean, 20% of Ohioans smoke. I mean, this is not, you know, I think a lot of people 
consider opioids and, and these things to still be the, the new thing to focus on. But tobacco cessation is still very much a fight happening across the country. And it's interesting to me that it's not just, I mean, we the shorthand is red versus blue, but it's not really just red versus blue, because as you point out, Governor DeWine's a Republican, fairly conservative Republican before him. Uh, Governor Kasich also fairly conservative or used to be considered a fairly conservative Republican. I mean, it's really about sort of being pro-public health or anti-public health. It gets us back to PEPFAR, right, Victoria? In the early 2000s, Republicans were very pro-public health. Newt Gingrich led the charge to double the funding at the National Institutes of Health. Um, And these days, what you have are very conservative Republicans who apparently don't believe in public health or in science. I was going to say, I think what this like series does so well is it emphasizes that so much of our challenges in the U.S. with health is not about sort of the medical system of health. It is the things that we sometimes don't even think about as healthcare, not even just public health, but the economic practices, our labor practices, our housing, our food system, that actually these are some of the main things that end up impacting who is living longer and healthier and so forth. And you know, I actually did an interview with an outgoing pharma lobbyist this week, and she was saying, you know, she mentioned chronic diseases, which was a big part of Lauren's story and saying, you know, We actually have more problems with chronic disease now than we did when I started, even though now we have all these cheap generic medicines for, you know, we have statins and blood thinners and a lot of diabetes medicines that are generic and all these things. And yes, we have problems with people accessing this medical system and affording it um, in the U.S. And that's a big thing. But a lot of this is starting sort of way before you get to the hospital and the doctor's office. And the U.S. has all these amazing technologies, but we're failing on these much more basic kind of solutions to keeping people healthy and alive. And it's also not just, you know, physical access to health care. I mean, Ohio is the home of the Cleveland Clinic, for heaven's sakes, you know, one of the major healthcare providers in the country. Ohio, part many parts of Ohio are pretty rural, but it's not like people have to drive hundreds of miles to get health care. So, I mean, this this whole public health issue is not simply a matter of, you know, people can't get to the doctor the way we have concerns about that in places like Texas and the far west. I mean, it really is just these everyday things, whether you wear your seatbelt, whether you, you know, start smoking. I think it kind of shined a light on actual public health and the importance of public health to life expectancy. I think also just going back to the politics of it for one second, like, I mean, I think a result of some of this is like just the increased polarization between the two parties and and Republicans. Um, Also, I think we're really mad about some decisions made during COVID. And so we're also seeing that where they're at the, the state and local level wanting to strip money from public health departments, as Lauren has reported on at KFF Health News and The Post. And then that's also you're seeing that in Congress as well now where they're not wanting they're angry at some of these decisions made and they want to strip funding from the CDC. They want to strip it from the NIH. And so we don't know how the appropriations bills are going to end up, but it's definitely something that they're talking about in the House, at least, which is in Republican control. So and everybody I talk to like about anti-vaccine sort of sentiment, they say once these sort of sentiments become aligned with like your political identity, it makes it so much harder to shift course. So, again, this idea that there's political alignment around how we think about public health is just seen as so problematic because of how people see their identities becomes much harder to change people's opinions when it's tied into your politics like that. Yeah. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, so one of the people in the piece and one of the folks I met in Asheville, Ohio, was Mike Zupp, who was a funeral home owner who was 52 years old. And what he told me is that a quarter of the people he buries are younger than him. 
I mean, that's just, that is a wild statistic. A quarter of the people he buries are younger than him. And honestly, he wasn't even surprised. I mean, that was just the norm. That was the way of life. And I think that's what the series shines a light on is that people across the U.S. just assume that lung cancer, heart attack, stroke, like that's just what happens. But that's not the case across the world. And it it doesn't have to be the case. And in certain states, it's not the case. California has much better life expectancy than Ohio does, despite them both being on a very similar trajectory in the 90s. It's pretty stark findings. Yeah, it's a really, really, really good uh, series. And, and we will link to it on the podcast page. All right. Well, that is this week's news. Now we will play my interview with Sam Shem, physician, author, and playwright. And then we will come back and do our extra credits for this week. I am honored to welcome to the podcast Samuel Shem, not his real name, by the way, Dr. Shem shook up the world of medical training back in 1978 when he wrote a groundbreaking novel about his first year as a medical resident called House of God. It was funny and sad and painted an altogether not very pretty picture of medical training in Boston at some of the nation's most esteemed hospitals and medical schools. He has spent most of the past five decades crusading, if I can use that verb, to, quote, put the human back in health care. Fun fact, my mom interviewed him for the Washington Post in 1985. Now Shem has a new novel called Our Hospital. It paints a funny and sad picture of the state of medical practice and the state of the American patient in the era of COVID. It's actually the fourth and final volume of his irreverent evaluation of the U.S. healthcare system. I spoke to Dr. Shem from his home office in upstate New York and started by asking him why he wanted to write a novel about COVID. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to write, and nobody does really. And what I did is I said, someone has to write about what's going on in a hospital, and we have to now talk about nurses. I haven't put them at the forefront until now, because they have done so incredibly much. And so I'm taking all the other books, the House of God books and others, and I'm bringing them all together like a family. And I absolutely, I don't have a big family, so I'm absolutely doing this with hair and vehemence and also a lot of skill in in 50 years. So go read it. I sort of approach this with trepidation because who wants to read a novel about COVID? But in the end, it's a pretty optimistic book about what the future of medicine can be, which, forgive me, feels odd for a novel about COVID and the possible end of democracy. Are you really that optimistic about America's ability to cure what ails our healthcare system? Or did you just get tired of writing depressing literature about the healthcare (laughs) system? Well, I am a crazy optimist because I grew up in a time like your mother when things changed. They changed because we got out there and we were in the streets and it changed. I was partly in the USA and partly on roads in Oxford. But I think we just have to get together and try to stay together. And, And what this book does the doctors and the nurses come together, and that is an immense force. We can do this. That's what I think. The best person in the book that I've ever written in some ways were the women nurses. The heroes of this book are all women, doctors and nurses. You've obviously been roundly criticized for your portrayal of women in in the original House of God. Is it just that you wanted to make it up, or do you really think that women are the future of fixing healthcare? (laughs) the future of anything. (laughs) 
my wife, uh, Janet Surrey, and I, you know, we worked a lot a long time ago on male-female uh, relationships. And women are a, a beacon of what men could do in medicine. You've got to have some kind of group that can get what we need. You've watched the evolution of medical practice in America for half a century now, the amazing advances and depressing depersonalization and corporatization. Which one is winning at this point? Well, both. The money, it's, it's hard to take money from people with so much money. <laughs> you know, It's crazy. It's insane. You know, and there are other models, you know, in, in Australia and all that stuff. What's happening, unfortunately, is that doctors are running. They're saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And sooner or later, with some giant people talking about it, doctors and nurses, it can't go on. It really can't go on. And some of the, the things that I'm hearing, doctors, they're saying, well, in two years, I'm gone. I can't do this anymore. But we can't do it alone. I can't say it so more and more. I mean, I know a lot about this in various different jobs I've had. It's got to be with doctors and nurses. What ties a lot of your writing together is the notion of burnout for medical professionals, which may be, as you mentioned, one of the biggest problems right now in U.S. healthcare. If you could wave a magic wand, what's one thing that you could do that could help medical professionals, both doctors and nurses and everybody else who works in medicine, love their work again? It's terrible. And young doctors, they don't know what to do. You know, I mean, do, do you worry that people won't want to go into medicine because it's now viewed as doctors particularly don't have the community esteem that they used to? Health workers, you know, are in danger sometimes in their own workplaces. It's not a great situation. Yes, I think we became horrified when we went on our first medical school times that we were in the hospital, right when the kids go into the hospital, it's it's obvious. It's really obvious. They're seeing the house staff spending 80% in front of a computer to bill. So they, they can't help but do it. Um, the problem is you've spent so much money and so much time. What the hell should I do? But there are people who are really paying attention to this. You know, I don't really do it in person too much, but in everything I say, I say these kinds of things. So I think it might help. You've now influenced several generations of medical practitioners. Is there a single lesson that you hope you have imparted on all of them? Yes. This is what I start my uh, addresses with. I call it staying human in medicine. The danger of isolation and the healing power of good connection. It's not I, you, it's the connection that goes after each of them. What's good connection? Mutual connection. If it's not mutual, it's not that good. So if you let me, you maybe I could read the very end. Is that all right? Yes, please. I'm with you totally. Almost everyone in medicine is hurting, doctors, nurses, and all the others, working in the money-driven hell realms of American care. We're all suffering terribly. COVID has lit it all up for all to see. The resists to our bodies, minds, and spirits are profound, killing ourselves, acting normal. The poor and people of color dying in droves. He paused, scanning the trees for the fat man. Nothing. He went on. We do miracles every day, we doctors, but we haven't been able to get a face to work in body and spirit. 
One in five healthcare workers have quit. Many of us died. At the start of COVID, we did the most important thing for us and our patients. We stuck together. We did. It's, it's, it's a model, right? But not in the lasting into the daytime. Hatred and money killed it. I, I have confidence. We're no dopes, we docs. <laughs> and I just think people like you and people who pay attention, it's inevitable. I do think it's inevitable that we're going to get better stuff. It really will. And get some of the greed out of medicine? Yes, because it's going to crash. You, you can't go on like this. And nobody can go on like this. I think so. I really do. You know what? It doesn't take much. You know, how did we get rid of the presidents in the 60s? Basically, people who are in the power are scared about losing the power. You know, all the people who protect them and all that stuff. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Samuel Shem, thank you for joining us. Okay. We are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read, too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, Victoria, why don't you go first this week? Sure thing. My extra credit is from KFF Health News, and it is called Feds Rein in Use of Predictive Software that Limits Care for Medicare Advantage Patients by Susan Jaffe. And this basically was kind of looking at how Medicare Advantage plans, which are plans that private health insurers run for people that are of Medicare age, they're basically running their health insurance programs. It's talking about how these MA plans are using predictive software systems to make coverage decisions for patients. And so they're kind of looking at other patients that may have similar illnesses and what their treatments were and how long it took to treat them. And then based on that, deciding when they should cut off coverage for patients. And so that doesn't always work very well, does it? (laughs) No, it does not. And the story chronicles how this has happened to several patients who are not ready to finish having whatever their treatment illness. Um, The person profile in the story still couldn't walk well. She had a colostomy bag and they were going to cut off her coverage. And so she had to keep paying for it, almost $10,000, just because this software said, oh, you should be done by now based on other people's cases. But there is some good news in that there is a Biden administration regulation that will be put into effect in January. And that's going to kind of do a better job of making sure these plans take the individual patient's circumstances into account when making these coverage decisions. But we'll see um, how that actually plays out. It uh, takes effect in January. So very, really good story. This is a very good story. (laughs) Yes. Sarah. I looked at a Wall Street Journal story, Children Are Dying in Ill-Prepared Emergency Rooms Across America by Liz Elsley White and Melanie Evans. And it's a piece that talks about how so many hospitals are not properly equipped to treat pediatric patients when they go to the ER. And it's sort of a a failure of sort of regulation, standards, and so forth. And they really document how this has been a long-known problem going back 20-plus years, and things have not changed. And so this may mean that you might not, even if you have a hospital near you, you might not have a hospital that really can successfully save your child's life. And that is because children are not little adults. There's different, you know, you really have to be trained to know how to deal with them in emergencies and also even just have the equipment, the specialized sized equipment and so forth to deal with them in emergencies. And it's a really sad story. It gets into, you know, some of the economic reasons why these hospitals are not prepared 
But, you know, again, it, it, it gives you a sense of a connection to Lauren's piece and the post-bank piece, which is that we have a lot of tools and technology we've developed in these, this country, but if it's not available to the people when and where they need it, you know, lives don't get saved. This piece really shook me because I assume that, I mean, kids are the ones who seem to end up in the emergency room most often. They're the ones who have accidents and fall off their bikes and, and, you know, and get sick in the middle of the night and all those other things. And, you know, yet so many emergency rooms are not prepared for them. Anyway, Lauren. So I picked a piece that is particularly alarming if you know anyone that has a CPAP machine, but uh, it's titled Phillips Kept Complaints About Dangerous Breathing Machine Secret While Company Profits Soared. And it's a collaboration between ProPublica, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and Northwestern, and I believe another Lens paper as well. But it's, it's a very disturbing investigation about how Phillips knew had been getting a ton of complaints that when they rejiggered some of their breathing machines, the foam was disintegrating and chunks of the black material was then getting into you know people who were using the breathing machine's lungs. And from the court cases, it appears causing them potential cancers and adverse health effects. And the FDA, I guess, from reading the piece, requires that companies report complaints. But according to this, the Phillips did not tell the FDA about all these complaints. Uh, so it's a really alarming story because you're like, how many other companies are not telling anyone about the complaints they're receiving? And just really well done investigation. It appears to be based on court documents. So so hats off to them. But very disturbing. Again, if you have anyone that has a CPAP or breathing machine they need to sleep, which is vital for everyone. And if you have an understanding of how those work, you are hooked up to it. So you are forced to breathe through it. So it really disturbing that that could be causing you adverse health effects down the road. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously not the first story we've seen on this, but it's certainly one of the most detailed stories that we have seen about this. Well, my story this week is from The Atlantic by Ron Brownstein, and it's called Virginia Could Determine the Future of the GOP's Abortion Policy. And I think he's right. Virginia votes in odd numbered years, remember. And well, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin isn't on the ballot next month, the entire state legislature, which has kind of teetered between Republican and Democratic control over the past several elections, is facing the voters. Democrats in Virginia, as elsewhere, are charging that if Republicans take back the majority in the state House and Senate, they will restrict abortion, which is likely true. But Republicans say they won't, quote, ban abortion per se, but would rather set a limit of 15 weeks with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the pregnant person. If voters in a purple state like Virginia see that as a compromise position rather than a ban, it could set the stage for Republicans elsewhere to fight the Democratic advantage, the current Democratic advantage advantage on the abortion issue. So we will see in about a month how that all shakes out. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our amazing engineer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can still find me at X, at Jay Rovner, or at Julie Rovner at Blue Sky and Threads. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin, or at Sarah Carlin Smith. Lauren? I'm at Lauren Weber HP for health policy. <laughs> Victoria. I'm at Victoria Regis K. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. <laughs> <laughs>